0: Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but this, the word of our God, is eternal and it remains forever. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you, do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress, incline your ear to me, answer me speedily in the day when I call, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace, my heart is struck down like grass and has withered, I forget to eat my bread, because of my loud groaning my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl in the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I'm like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink because of your indignation and anger. For you have taken me up and thrown me down My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion, he appears in his glory, he regards the prayer of the destitute, and does not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when the peoples gather together, and the kingdoms to worship the Lord. He has broken my strength mid-course. He has shortened my days. O oh my God, I say, take not me away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, you will change them like a robe and they will pass away but you are the same and your years have no end the children of your servants shall dwell secure their offspring shall be established before you uh, so ends the reading of our God's word let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning Father we know that your word is good, it is perfect it gives life, it enlightens the eyes and it renews the soul but we also know that it can be and has been abused we know that sinful man has used your glorious word for his own sinful ends we want to hear your word as you want it to be heard and yet this also scares us because your word is about Jesus and his need to suffer before he enters into glory if we were honest we would confess that we want Jesus without the cross, we want his kingdom without the tribulation, we want comfort not character And so we ask that you crucify these desires. May our only desire be for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And may every word that comes from this pulpit reflect your word as you intended it. Guard my lips, open our hearts and our ears so that we might see Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. Well, in uh, 1990, a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to Eastern Europe with a group on a short-term missions trip. And while we were there, we were able to visit the Berlin Wall while it was in the process of being taken down. Uh, and it's probably not surprising, but I gathered up a bunch of those little fragments of the wall, and they were everywhere. Um, and I brought them home. And you ask, why? Uh, They have no intrinsic value. They are, are broken scraps of a concrete wall. Were they from any other wall, they would be a burden. They would be trash, worthless debris. But those little fragments are a piece of history. Now, not a glorious history. In fact, quite an ugly history part of the, some of the ugliest history in modern, uh, modern world. So why? Why gather up fragments of an ugly history of a broken wall and bring them across an ocean, bring them home? Why remember such an ugly part of history? And I think the answer is because there are some things that you don't want to forget. Some lessons are so costly that you only want to have to learn them once. And so you grab on to reminders, those, those fragments, that, that rubble, in the hope that it helps you not to forget and therefore need to repeat an ugly piece of history. And so those little pieces of stone and the, and the concrete... They represent something. Well, I'm not the only one to gather stones as reminders of key events in history. Uh, Perhaps you remember uh, in Joshua 4, after Israel had crossed the Jordan to come into the land, that Joshua commanded uh, the elders of all 12 tribes to each bring a stone and to pile them up at the Jordan River. And he said this was to be a a memorial, a reminder uh, to them and to future generations of what the Lord had done for them on that day. Memorial stones. Not really that different than those little fragments I brought home from Berlin. I've seen people collect stones from different places they visit. Uh, Every time they they go on a trip or whatever, they bring home a rock. And and each one represents uh, a a memory. Something they can touch. Something that they can uh, use to remember important times, trips, uh, family, friends. Those, those memorials, those mementos aren't always stones uh, some perhaps have uh, some have lost someone and they hold on to something that that person gave them they keep it close it's a treasured possession and it's sentimental value Exceeds its material value. That's what important experiences, uh, important relationships do. They they invest common objects with uncommon value. But that value can only be appreciated by those who understand what really matters in life. That it's not riches, possessions. It's relationships, lessons, character. And I think most of us have been there. And, and if we stop and reflect, uh, those, those items typically become most valuable, not through the easy times, but through hard times, tough times. It might be the loss of a loved one, uh, it might be the loss of a home, a job, or simply a happier season in life. It could be something that reminds you of a particularly hard time in your life when you, when you came to see things more clearly because that's what hard times do. They, they bring clarity. And when clarity comes, you don't want to lose it. And so we look for reminders, things we can hold on to so that lesson isn't lost. And I think God understands all of this. He, he tells us, um, and he, he helps us understand that if, if we are going to grow, if we're going to see clearly, if we're going to learn what really matters, that we're going to need these times in life where he strips all things away and helps us to see what really matters. In fact, we're going to see this morning in this psalm that that through affliction, God teaches you to cling to the things that really matter, things that are eternal, and that he even will give you precious little fragments, precious little stones to hold on to and remember those lessons. That's what we're going to see as we look at Psalm 102. And as we do, we also want to see that uh, that. God uh, uses those times to draw us closer to him. and, And hard times actually become precious to us. We learn what's important and we want to pass those on to our children. For years to come, I, I love the superscription at the top that introduces this psalm. It says, uh, "A prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint before the Lord." <laughs> it's just a few words, but boy, does it say a lot. Um, as we begin the psalm, we know that the writer has borne much affliction. <laughs> we know that he is faint. That is, uh, he's tired, he's exhausted, he's beat down, he's at the end of his rope and he can't go much further. And we know how he sees what he's about to say. This is a complaint. He's bringing his grievance against God. And he begs God, as he does, not to turn a deaf ear toward him. He says, hear my prayer. Do not hide your face... Answer me. He says, we need to talk. Please don't ignore me. So, what is it? What's his complaint? What's the affliction he's borne? And what is he concerned about? That's the question we're we're asking as we enter into this psalm. And as we, we read on in verses 12 through 21, what we see is that Jerusalem has been abandoned and lies in ruins. Uh, The temple has been torn down. That's what's being referred to by Zion. And all that's left on on that hill in the center of Jerusalem is rubble and dust. What this is describing is a time in Israel's history when they were in exile. when God gave them the land, he brought them out of, out of slavery in Egypt. He, he brought them up into the land. And as he did, he warned them that there were expectations for, for them if they were to stay in the land. Should they refuse to follow those expectations, a time would come when God would drive them out and they would be taken away in, in, into slavery and imprisonment. And so finally, during the days of Jeremiah, that time came. God's patience could wait no longer. And so he raised up the Assyrians to take the ten tribes in the north and the Babylonians uh, to take the two tribes in the south. And he left the land abandoned in, in disrepair, in ruins, and in rubble. And the people now are enslaved and they're mistreated and they're mocked and they're despised and they're ridiculed and they're in agony. Yes, physically they are in agony, but much more so, emotionally they are in agony. Look at how he describes himself in verses 4 through 8. He says he's unable to eat, he feels all alone, he's unable to sleep at night, and yet his days are filled with distress as his enemies mock him and afflict him continually. And perhaps you've been there when your days are painful, but your nights give you no relief because your heart and your soul are in such distress you can't even sleep even though you're so exhausted. And you feel like you're you're wasting away. And, and you feel alone, like, like no one can understand, no one can identify. And there you are, isolated in your pain, your misery. It's not hard to imagine the things that would be going through the psalmist's mind and his heart as he pours out his complaint because they're the things that would be going through our hearts and minds in a situation like this. They're the things that go through our hearts and minds when we're suffering because affliction makes us think that either God has abandoned us or he's simply no longer in control and able to rescue us. Those tend to be the only two options we tend to think of when life is hard. That's how we think. And the psalmist takes one of these. In verse 10, he says that all of this is not because God is powerless, but because he's angry. Because of your indignation and your anger, you have taken me up and you have thrown me down. He says God has turned his back on him. In fact, he wishes maybe God would forget about him because maybe indifference would be better than antagonism. But that's his complaint. He sees God is behind all these afflictions and pain. And not just his, but all the people. He's not alone. All the people of Israel are suffering. But there's an elephant in the room, something that's there, that's present, but not being talked about. Because the question is, and it's a question he doesn't want to answer, is this. How did they all get there? After all, at one time, they had the land. They had peace. They had prosperity. They had God's provision and and his protection. And in the middle of all that, they had his temple. They had God's presence in their midst among them everything they could possibly ask for but they took it for granted back then when they had all those things there wasn't their complaint wasn't that God was too distant it was that he was too close and he was smothering them They prioritized at that time their their comfort over their, their character. They, they were more interested in their wants than they were in worship. They they preferred food that filled their stomachs than food that filled their souls. And all they cared about was this creation and not the next. What was temporal, not eternal, and that was the problem. They had come to desire the wrong things. Things that didn't ultimately help them. Things that didn't ultimately last. Things that didn't ultimately matter. Their priorities weren't just off. Their priorities were dangerous. Because if they were left uncorrected, they would have horrible, eternal consequences. Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? And that's what they were in danger of. And so if the Lord loved them, what they needed more than anything else was to be woken up, redirected, have their eyes opened and their priorities reordered. And that was why God sent them into exile. That was why he allowed affliction. That's why he allowed the, the land uh, to be, uh, that he had given them and the temple that, that he occupied to be completely ravaged and broke down. Because sometimes you don't know what you have until it's gone. And the only way to learn to appreciate it is to have it taken away at least for a time. And so there they sat in exile, unable to sleep, and weeping. And as they wept, verse 9 says, their tears started to become their food. But tears don't feed the stomach, tears feed the soul weeping gives you perspective it helps you to understand what's really important what really matters you know how this is one minute you're so angry with a family member over some tiny insignificant issue that you are convinced is the biggest insult and offense you have ever received in your life and then the next minute you get a phone call that that person has been in an accident and that thing that mattered so much a minute before Couldn't be less important. And you're just begging God. Spare his life. Spare her life. And I promise I'll never be angry again. Perspective. And that's exactly what's going on with the Israelites in in exile. Look at verses 13 and 14. The stones of Zion. Those temple stones that they once couldn't be bothered to go visit are now dear and they're weeping over her dust Zion was that hill on which the temple stood and these stones are all that remains of the temple they're they're, they're just a heap that temple that they once took for granted and neglected and even despised is now what matters most to them those stones which no longer constitute a recognizable building (laughs) are precious to them more valuable than any earthly possession because those stones represent the one who dwelt in that house it took losing everything to understand what they had and how important it was And so those stones represent everything they've learned through their affliction. And, their, and that lesson is precious. And so that heap of rubble, those broken down walls, those broken stones, have become precious stones to them. The psalm isn't, isn't just a prayer in the midst of affliction. It's a model for us on how to pray because it's honest it's honest with its struggles, with the struggles. It's honest with the pain, with the sorrow, even admitting that it's complaint. But it's also honest with the lesson that's learned and where hope is found and how important that lesson is. Because what the people perceived as God's wrath and indignation has actually turned out to be the kindest thing he could have ever done for them. What they were actually witnessing in their affliction was the kindness of God because it was through that adversity that they gained clarity on what truly mattered more than anything else the reason that heap of rubble that was once the temple has now become precious even though it's far less impressive as the world might see is because they've now come to see as God sees and it was their time in exile that taught them that now they're starting to see who God is And what they once saw as wrath and indignation or proof that God was too weak to save has turned out to be their salvation. Not from Assyria and Babylon. That's not what matters. It's been salvation from themselves and their arrogance and their missed priorities. Their own pride and their own folly. They're finally able to look to the future with confidence and with hope because they understand that God's work of discipline has done its work in them. So they're confident that now God remembers them. They're confident that now uh, the Lord hears their prayers, verses 17, 19, and 20. They know that now is the time for restoration, verse 13, because the affliction has done its work and they have learned to see those stones as precious. And so they're confident, verse 21, that they will again stand in God's presence in Zion. And worship Him. And that has become their greatest delight. What was once an obligation, what was once an annoyance, has become their deepest desire and their greatest privilege. It's like Israel piling up stones at the Jordan River so that future generations might know what God had done for them. They want what has happened to them in exile to be recorded, verse 18, so that future generations might learn this sweet lesson they have learned. God didn't just free them from imprisonment. Verse 20, he did it so that they might praise him in his temple. Verse 21, They finally get it. And they want their children to understand. They want the surrounding nations to understand. Because the human soul cannot be at peace until it bows in worship before its creator. That's what souls learn when they feed on tears. That's what our sorrows teach us. That's what our afflictions teach us. What God did with Israel and and Jerusalem was a small picture of what he was doing with all of humanity to the very ends of creation and until the end of creation. You see, the Jews were just like Adam and and Eve in the garden. Uh, The garden was God's temple in creation according to Ezekiel. And there, Adam and Eve had everything they could dream of. They had food in abundance, they, they had peace, they had God's protection, uh, and, and they had, most importantly, God himself present with them in fellowship. But they took it all for granted. And they, they prioritized power over piety, they, their wants over worship, food for their stomachs over food for their souls this creation over the next and so God sent them into exile he sent them out of the garden out of his presence and he humbled them so that they might long to have again what they once had that they would learn to prize the eternal over the temporal that they would see that character is more important than comfort and that worship is more than any other want they could ever have And that food for the stomach can 't save, but food for the soul can, so they were sent out into a world of affliction, backbreaking labor, painful childbirth, death, illness, division, and animosity, all so that they could learn that this creation can 't last, but that God will one day re- uh, re- uh, replace this creation with a new creation as, as our psalm says in verse 26 like someone changing a robe <laughs> like that God will change the old for the new and until that, until that day comes he, he continues to teach us these lessons he allows suffering and affliction because he loves us because affliction produces tears and because tears feed our soul they teach us what really matters and so they become precious but as kind as all of this is it does not exist the kindness of God when it comes to affliction it would be easy to say that God just sends us affliction because he loves us. And, and that's true, but, but that word just is not helpful because we have a God who does not simply send affliction into our lives to save us. We have a God who enters into affliction with us to save us. I wonder if some of the words in our psalm remind us of something Jesus said during his earthly ministry. Early in John's gospel, uh, Jesus went to confront the Jews because of their treatment of God's temple. They had again, even though it had been rebuilt, started to take it for granted. And they took God for granted. And they saw the temple as an opportunity to, to satisfy their wants, to increase their comfort, and to fill their stomachs. And so they found ways to profit off of the sacrificial system. And so Jesus went and he drove them all out. <laughs> and when pressed on this, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again. And they thought he was threatening to destroy the temple that had finally been rebuilt after 40, uh, over a, a period of 40 years. But John, the, the, the author of the gospel, tells us, no, no, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What Jesus was telling them was that tears alone weren't enough to save them. They could weep and cry all they wanted and it wouldn't save them because they had a debt to pay for their sin. And someone had to pay that debt. Jesus himself would have to suffer what they deserved in their place because that was the only way to forgive the debt they owed. And even though he was the true temple in which the fullness of God dwelt, he would have to be taken up and thrown down, reduced to dust and rubble in order to purchase our salvation. And that happened in his death on the cross. And to a watching world, that death was proof that either God was rejecting him or simply powerless to save, unable to rescue him. For many, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was proof that Jesus shouldn't be taken seriously. Referring to his death on the cross, Psalm 118 says this. It calls him the stone that the builders rejected trash, debris, rubble. But the psalmist goes on and says that this was actually according to the Lord's doing. And for this reason, it is marvelous in our eyes, it is precious. That, that rejected stone has become the cornerstone out of which the Lord is building an entirely new temple. And so the death of Jesus, something for all appearances, was, was the greatest failure of history has become the most precious thing to us. And so we cling to it. Because in in the dust and the rubble, we see our glorious hope. We see our salvation. And there is nothing more precious than the death of Jesus Christ. Not all the riches of the world. Not long life. Not comfort and not ease. And not full stomachs and abundance of food. We've come to realize that we will have Jesus or nothing at all. That he is our precious stone. And God understands our need for the tangible reminders. Like those pieces of the Berlin Wall or those stones piled up at the Jordan. Or those loose bricks on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. God understands that sometimes we need something to hold on to that can remind us of what really matters. We're about to come to the Lord's table where we're going to hold this little piece of bread and a little cup of wine, reminders of Jesus' death, the day when the temple of his body was destroyed. It was the worst day in history a cause for tears, and it was also the greatest day in history because it was the day when our salvation was purchased. The bread and the wine, they're small, unimpressive, scraps, some might say debris, But to us, they are precious stones of remembrance. Because they take us back to what matters most. And so as we come to this table, this is what we are confessing. We will have Jesus or nothing at all. He is our precious stone. And so I'd like to ask the elders and Pastor Isaac to come forward that we might receive this gift from our God this morning. Please bow with me in prayer. Father, you are good. Even when we are too blind, too self-absorbed to see your goodness, you are good. Through tears you feed our souls, you teach us what really matters, and you drive us to the important things, you drive us to you. And so we praise you and we confess gladly that if we don't have you, we have nothing that we prefer you to comfort, we prefer you to our wants, we prefer you to all the food or riches this world has to offer. We would have Jesus or we would have nothing at all. He is our most treasured possession. He is our precious stone. And the afflictions that you have used to teach us that have become precious stones to us as well, we pray. Through our Savior, amen.